Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Mies, the revolutionary new interactive recipe tool for professional chefs and cooks. Designers use Figma, photographers use Photoshop. Now, finally, chefs have the right tool for recipe development, management, training, and evolution with Mies. Like Mise en Place, the term that inspired its name, Mies helps chefs and cooks be organized, ready, and efficient, save time and money, eliminate mistakes and redundancies, and guarantee consistency, whether in one restaurant or across a multi-unit company. Visit GetMees, that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew to learn more and sign up for a free trial membership. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I can walk into any kitchen on any given day and just have my chef coat on, be fairly anonymous, pick up a paring knife, stand next to somebody who's peeling a case of apples and find out their story, where they came from, what they're doing there, what gets them excited, and you know a little bit about who they are. It helps me to stay engaged. The notion that there is a lot of purpose to the passing on of this time-honored tradition of the culinary arts. That is the voice of Lisa Bet Suma of Big Time Restaurant Group in South Florida. I had never experienced that kind of racism in my life in the Bay Area. And so seeing that this is happening here, it, it is shaking me up a little bit. It's just surprising to me. Like you said, it, you know, we, we have a really strong Asian American community here. And that is Brandon Jew of Mr. Jew's Restaurant in San Francisco and author of the new cookbook, Mr. Jews in Chinatown. They are our guests today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. I hope you're all doing well. I have a good show for you today. I actually have a great show for you today. Lisa Bet Suma of Big Time Restaurant Group in South Florida is our feature guest. And we also have a returning guest, someone who was with us for one of our special reports last year, Brandon Jew of Mr. Jew's Restaurant in Chinatown in San Francisco. That phrasing is actually also the title of his new cookbook, Mr. Jews in Chinatown. Before I get to them, uh, just a couple of quick things. I, I just want to share that I am feeling optimistic. I've talked about this a little bit on the show recently. I do live in, in the New York City area. The weather is turning, I think, for good. I think we've turned the corner. It is officially spring. That doesn't always mean that you get the weather that comes with it, but it's been beautiful here on the East Coast of the United States. We're going to hit 70 degrees this Thursday. Uh, people are getting vaccinated like like crazy. <laughs> uh, I actually had an appointment booked for next month. And then at the urging of many of my friends, I took a shot and went online. No pun intended, took a shot. But I went online 
and got an appointment for tomorrow. Uh, that's going to be this Wednesday for my first vaccine shot. I'm incredibly excited about it. I, I now kind of understand what people talk about, this feeling of relief they have as soon as they get that first shot or if, the, if the, they get the Johnson & Johnson one as soon as they get the shot. I'm feeling that already and I haven't even been to the to the Walgreens yet where I'm going to get it. So I am very excited about that. I took a few road trips this weekend. My wife Caitlin and I took a day and went up to Mystic, Connecticut and paid a visit to some former guests of the show, James Wayman at Nana's Pizzeria and Bakery, which is a pretty special little place there. And then we went and saw Joel Gargano at Grano Arso Italian Restaurant in Chester, Connecticut. I think it was my fourth visit to that restaurant. Always amazing, just always amazing. And we sat outdoors. It was just spectacular. I am also returning later this week. I, I did this a bit in the fall. Uh, I did it with Omar Tate recently. I have not been able to do it much at all though, um, but I am booking a series of in person interviews on the show and I can't wait. I already have two booked back to back outdoors, of course, in New York City this Friday. There will possibly be a third one on the same day. I look forward to sharing those with you. There's just an energy around, at least for me, interviewing face to face, even if it's at a bit of a distance uh, with the pandemic concerns that I, it just takes things to a whole nother level. It makes me really happy. And I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of, I've mentioned this on the show recently, I'm weighing whether or not I'll continue to do remote interviews. It's something I had never done before the pandemic for the, sh for the podcast, but you know, we've had some really great episodes. I mean, the Rick Bayless show a few weeks back, I think was maybe one of the best shows we've ever done. And obviously that was done by remote. So, you know, I, I, I've come to remind myself every day that very few decisions are final. And very few decisions are urgent. So I'm not making a decision or a commitment about this. I'm going to see how it goes for the next few weeks. There's some people I've committed to having on by remote. I'm going to honor those commitments. It's entirely possible by the time we get into the summer, I'll go back to only doing in-person interviews with people who live around New York or people who pass through New York, which is things start to lift in terms of the shutdown. People do tend to find their way here very often. It's never really been a problem for the show that I only do in-person interviews. So we'll see how it goes. But if you have any feedback about that, I'd love to hear from you all in whatever way you want to reach out to me. You can message me on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. You can email me via the email links on the website for the show at andrewtalkstochefs.com. But uh, I'd love to know what you all think if you have any feedback you want to share. So let me get you to our guests. Uh, as I said, our feature guest is Lisabeth Suma, who I will get to uh, in a little bit. But first, it is time, as it is every week, for The Lineup, our weekly news and commentary segment. And our guest on this week's lineup is Brandon Jew of Mr. Jew's Restaurant in San Francisco. He is also the author, along with his collaborator, Tianlan Ho. And Tianlan, I hope I am pronouncing your name right. Your first name is spelled T I. E-N-L-O-N, Tian Lan Ho. And the book is Mr. Jews in Chinatown, Recipes and Stories from the Birthplace of Chinese American Food. It's a wonderful book. It's a, full of a lot of personal history of Brandon's as well as a lot of history, not just of Chinatown, but of very specific aspects of the 
San Francisco Chinatown, including the building where Mr. Jews is housed. Uh, that was something that surprised me. It's, it's a feature that's not typical at all of, of most restaurant cookbooks, and it makes a lot of sense. And it was actually quite moving, and it happens very early in the book and sets up incredible context for the book. Uh, I wanted to have Brandon on because he's a guy that I, I like, and I've had his food, and I admire it. And, um, you know, I want to support his book. To be totally honest, I also want to talk about this rising problem in this country that is really becoming deeply concerning and frightening, which is, of course, the increase in anti-Asian American sentiment and hate crimes against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the United States. This is, I don't even know what to say about it. I'm sure most of you listening are aware of the, I mean, do we call it a mass murder? I guess the number of people who were killed, you, you know, that would be an appropriate phrase. In Atlanta, about a week ago, and uh, all kinds of smaller incidents, but I don't want to diminish the other ones, whether or not it's simply, uh, you know, scaring or terrorizing people or actually physically abusing people or property. It's, it's really something that I find, I don't even have the words for it, to be honest, but I wanted to invite someone of that community on the show. Uh, and I didn't want to just invite someone on as listeners to the show know, I, I'm always a little skittish about asking people to come on simply because they happen to fit into a demographic column, right? So Brandon has a new book out. Uh, it's only been out for about 10 days. And I thought, okay, well, let's have Brandon on. We'll talk about the book and we'll also talk about this other thing. And, and hopefully that'll make it a little more palatable and pleasurable for him. Um, but I also was very keen to get his thoughts about what's going on across this country, especially since, as he points out in the introduction to the book, San Francisco's Chinatown is the United States' oldest Chinatown, and these incidents have been occurring even in San Francisco, which to me, having spent a lot of time there over the years, you know, the, the Asian American and Pacific Islander community is such a part of the fabric of San Francisco life and culture, and of course, restaurant life and the culinary landscape there, that the fact that it's happening in such a cosmopolitan city, a city where, uh, you know, this community has been part of the larger community for so long, I really have a hard time computing it. So I just, I thought it'd be good to talk to Brandon about it, get his thoughts from on the ground there and get his thoughts as somebody who's living this every day. Before we start the conversation, I do want to remind you that as always, the lineup is sponsored by Mies the revolutionary recipe sharing, training, scaling, and costing tool for professional chefs and cooks. Just as we help you make sense of industry news, Mies helps you organize your recipes. Learn more and sign up at getmees, that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com slash Andrew. And with that, here's my conversation with Brandon Jew. Brandon, welcome to the show. It's good to have you back. I, you know, this is kind of a, I mean, this is going to be kind of a, I don't know what I'd call this, like a schizophrenic or a bipolar conversation. Because on the one hand, I, I, I want to celebrate you and your book, um, which has only been out, I think, about maybe 10 days or so. And it's, it's wonderful. Um, you know, but I also, uh, and I, I've, I'll, I'll have said this in the introduction, you know, I'm always very loath to invite anyone on this show 
simply because of you know what demographic they fall into. I I don't like doing. I don't like people to put people in that position. I don't want people to ever feel that's the only reason I book them on the show. You know, I was very eager to talk about this rise in uh, hate and hate crimes that's being directed toward the Asian and Pacific Islander communities in this country. And, um, you know, so I thought I'd reach out to you. We'll, we'll talk about your book, which is a very happy thing. Um, it's, I think, a little extra poignant coming out in the midst of this horrible news that we keep getting uh, uh you know, uh, updated on every day. The most the most dramatic example was what happened in Atlanta recently. Um, but um, well, you you pick. <laughs> should we start with that? Should we start with the the happy, or should we start with the tragic? Um, let's go with the bad news first. Okay. Why don't you just first, as broadly as you want to respond to the way I just set it up? Um, you know, you personally, you living in a city that has such a rich heritage uh you know in uh, the, the the asian american community in 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 san francisco i mean i can't think of san francisco without thinking about it it's such a it's so ingrained right but i've seen these uh, nothing is as as horrible as what happened in atlanta but i've seen plenty of stuff posted you know little videos and 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 personal testaments that have been posted to social media i mean you guys haven't been spared any of this just just take t- tell me what what you're feeling and what you're experiencing on this front right now. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you reached out, Andrew, because I, I think this is a time for um, for Asian Americans to really um, advocate for um, the people that, that um, are, are, are getting hurt here and, um, and, and to not be okay with it and to be... Um, you know, to stand up and, and to um, really, uh, you know, demand change. Um, and in the case of, of what's going on right now, I mean, I'm, sur- I'm so surprised. It's, it's, it's shocking because it's happening here in the Bay Area. Um, and like you said, it's, it's, you know, I like to think about the Bay Area as a very culturally diverse place that, that celebrates a lot of people's cultures and are very happy living amongst each other. Um, that, that's clearly not the case right now. Um, or maybe that it hasn't been, ever been that way, um, which is really sad to say. But the fact that this is happening um, when we're still trying to get through the pandemic and um, uh, a lot of our seniors here in the Bay Area are being targeted for, for um just petty theft or um, in a lot of cases uh, just to just to hurt them um, some of them were not even robbed they, they were just punched in the face or pushed from behind um, and this is like being pushed with like the force of you know young uh, athletic like looking males that are going like running full you know, full force at someone. Yeah. It's like, a, it's like a linebacker taking out a grant, like a grandparent, like, and, and doing it and doing it from behind. Yeah. It's really dirty. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's real low. It's a real low kind of, um, I, like it, I, I can't believe someone would, would actually do that. Um, you know, and 
we're, you know, as a society, we're already dealing with so much. And, and in a sense, like there's an optimistic feeling because we're coming out of the pandemic and, and to have this now be um, overshadowing some of what has felt like, you know, a group effort in a, in a sense of um, like all of us um, coming together to, to get through this pandemic together. It's really, really hurtful to see that this is happening. I, I'm hoping that at least more people seeing that this is happening are, are going to be aware of it. You know, this is something that, that has happened even obviously before the pandemic. My, my mom, and she would probably be upset for me telling, you know, people about this, but she, when she came to, to Mr. Jews um, a couple of years ago, on the way back to her car, this is like four blocks from, from uh, the restaurant, she was mugged, her and her two friends. Um, they were mugged um, and their purses were stolen. And my mom had, my mom had a black eye, you know, and, and, um, cause she wouldn't give up her purse. And so they punched her, uh, in the face. And, you know, I was furious. Um, and also just like really alarmed that it, this would, would happen, um, just, you know, steps away from, from our restaurant. Um, and this is eight thirty at night. This is not like you know in the wee hours of the morning or or anything like that. Like, um, so this is this is purely our community being targeted. Um, this is this is purely about um, uh, other people thinking that 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 we um, as as a community um, are are kind of you know just targeted um, because. Because in our culture, you know, this is like my, my parents and my grandparents that, that, like I said, like they don't want this to be out there. It, they were, I don't, you know, this is ingrained into a kind of a culture that, that, um, that doesn't, you know, want this to be out there to cause any, any problems. Can you just expand on this for a minute? Cause you're saying something to me that no one's ever said to me before. What exactly are you describing here when you say they don't want it to be out there? Like what, what exactly do you mean by that? When there's crimes in, in, um, in the community, um, it's very hard to find witnesses because I think there, 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 there had been a lot of, I don't know, backlash or some sort of, um, repercussions of being a, a witness, um, and a vocal witness and, and, and actually an identifiable witness, um, of something that, that, um, was a crime. And, and that's kind of in our culture, um, you know, just from knowing my, my parents and and my grandparents that they were, uh, if something happened to them, um, you know, negatively, they would rather just move on and not talk about it than to, expose it and, and, and say, this is not right. And I think that's the biggest difference of, of, of our culture, um, which is great to see our community, um, our, our, the younger generation trying to respect, you know, our parents and our grandparents wishes, but also just saying, you know what, this is, this is, we're fed up with this. Like, this is not changing. Um, and this is, and, and to just move on and pretend like this didn't happen or just to move on and not bring people's attention to this, like that's not okay anymore. Um, and it never has been, it's just, 
Well, it's it's too dire now, right? I mean, it's too dire to turn up. I mean, as, as bad as what happened to your mom, for example, was it wasn't fatal, you know, um, uh, right. it wasn't like there were, uh, you know, people outside your restaurant every night uh, having some stupid, you know, ridiculous protests that made no sense. Um, but now, right. you know, there it's like it is sort of like a movement right now. You know, I, I pre-recorded the introduction to the show because I'm I'm interviewing you day of today, right? And and I said in the intro, I don't have, and I'm I'm supposed to be a writer, right? That's supposed to be what I do. I don't have the words to describe <laughs> the dismay um, that I feel watching this unfold. I mean, it is just and and you and I were chatting for a minute before we started recording. You know, and you said this thing to me, you know, it's always been there, right? And that is true. This is not, and whatever forces made it, these people feel like it was okay to come out into the open and start acting this way. It, it These are not all new converts to this way of thinking. It, it's just not, that's not how this works, right? Um, right, right. Uh, and certainly, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to at all pivot the conversation to this, but you know, <laughs> Listen, I'm 53 years old. I grew up in South Florida. I mean, I I'm no. I mean, I've been living with my whole childhood was punctuated by anti-Semitism, and I I've always known one of the reasons. You know, when I hear you talk about, uh, you know, the 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 turning point this represents for you in terms of how you feel as a San Franciscan, you know, who is of an Asian background, you know, I've always known that one of the reasons I felt comfortable in New York. I mean, I came to college in New York, and I was like, oh. Uh, this is not really that much of an issue here. I'm going to stay. I mean, it's one of the reasons I, I'm a New Yorker. It's not the only reason. Right. It's not the primary reason, but it has sort of always been like a byproduct, you know, or a benefit of loving New York is that I feel much less self-conscious being Jewish here. Um, I just do. Yeah. Um, and there's a community of a lot of support. Yes. There, yes. Right? Uh, I mean, are there, do I, are, do I, yeah, listen, have I dealt with people over the years who I can just smell the anti-Semitism? Absolutely. But I've always felt safe here, right? And, and you know, uh, to hear you talk about this sea change that's happened for you in San Francisco, I mean, I can imagine how rattled you must feel because, you know, you've lived your life up to this point, as you describe it, not having to feel that way. Um, and yeah. I can imagine that would be incredibly disorienting and very frightening. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't really, I can't really pinpoint a instance that I've experienced, um, you know, kind of that kind of, uh, racism in, 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 especially in the Bay area. Um, I've experienced it in other parts of the world when I, where I've lived in other places and, you know, I, it kind of brought back some of what was, um, I, I don't know if you ever, if you saw like a couple of years ago, um, Jalinas, um, that uh it's like a kind of a fine dining chef kind of um tour it's the swap it's the big swap that's right yeah, yeah. well for people who and, don't know it's it's like it's like an exchange program for chefs right i forget the number <laughs> but they they kind of swap restaurants right so like you would maybe go to some person's restaurant in paris right and that person might right. come over and do a dinner at mr jews and it was and there was always right. a big reveal around it. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I was really excited to be a part of it. Um, and, uh, you know, like two years ago, or maybe three years ago, I can't remember. It's, it's been kind of a long time. But um, there was that year it, we were just trading recipes. And, you know, I was doing recipes um, from a certain chef. And, um, 
and and that was being passed around all over the world, which is really cool. Um, but in Italy, there was there was a, a chef that you know kind of unbeknownst to his uh, his his understanding, you know he he um, went on camera uh, with his entire staff um, and slanted their eyes. They wore uh, just like parchment paper in the form of rice hats. And they thought that was funny. Like they, 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 they were, they took a picture and posted it and tagged like the other chef and Jelinas because they, they had no clue what, what they were doing was, was, um, was racist. And, and that, that actually reminded me a lot of my time in, in Italy, unfortunately, and you know, some of the bad times I had there, people would walk up to me, laugh at me and, and slant their eyes at me. And I, I had never experienced that kind of racism in my life, um, you know, in, in, in the Bay area. Um, and, and so seeing that this is happening here, um, it's, it, it, it is shaking me up a little bit. It's, it's, it's kind of, um, it's just surprising to me. Like you said, it, you know, we, we have a lot of, um, we have a really strong Asian American community here. Um, you know, we have politicians here, we have up and down, you know, there's, there's, um, police chiefs that are, you know, that are Asian. There's, um, you know, and there's, I, I feel like we're, we're very integrated into American society here in, in the Bay area. And I think that, that's what's disheartening about this coming up is like either this is this has always been the case where people don't feel like we're American or we don't deserve to be American or whatever or this is this is also being on top of what people are either blaming you know the coronavirus after um, the Asian community and I, I it's hard to to know where this is coming from but it's it is there is a desperation that's still existing um as we come out of this pandemic and maybe into a recession um there's there's been a lot of break-ins um there's been a, a lot of robberies and and this is um uh it's hard to know like if is is this completely directed to um to our community um based on uh, what was already always there or, or is this actually like a product of, of Trump and, and the rhetoric of, of, um, of China being the source of really all of, you know, these problems that the pandemic has created, you know, um, that that's being associated to the virus, you know, and, and, and I think, um, you know, this is, it, it's, it's, it hurts because we're, as we come out of this pandemic, like I said, it's it, to, to see that this is happening now, um, or at least being, you know, brought up now. Um, it, it's, it's just surprising to me that it's happening here. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more with all that. I also just want to say, because inevitably I'll get a note or two, you know, you, you did mention our, our now former president in your comments, um, uh, and, you know, I, last year I, 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 I aired my feelings around the election. Uh, I did an editorial around the election that was overtly political. 
uh, it was. Um, I don't consider a single thing, we're what? We're about 20 minutes in on this conversation. I don't consider a single thing you would not, either you or I have said so far to be political. This to me is all about humanity and decency. Please, nobody, don't send me a note telling me to stay out of politics. This is not political. What is going on right now is horrific. Thank you, Andrew. I'm not really interested in... in... You can send them my way, Andrew. I'll have a response. No, but I'm just saying, I'm not talking about a, a proposition. I'm not talking about an election, and neither are you. I'm talking about people are getting murdered uh, in, 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 in this country uh, just for who they are, for... I mean, it's it's never justifiable, but for just like you know, the, the just like the most ignorant reasons, it's just it's it's the I shouldn't even say reasons, the most ignorant rationale. Um, it it's the kind of thing that I think a lot of us thought, you know, this is the kind of thing you see in old documentaries or read about in history books, stuff that goes back, you know, at least half a century. Um, and it's all clearly alive and well. But please, I'm just putting this disclaimer. I'm not going to entertain anything that tries to couch this as like politics. It's not politics. This stuff has always been there. Uh, you know, society made it um, unsafe for it to come out in the open. And then and then things made it, you know, people feel like they could come out in the open and they could act on some of these really bad impulses. And I, I do think, and it's why, listen, I just have a little podcast about chefs, right? But I feel like the only thing we can do in the short term is show solidarity, talk about this openly, make it clear where, where we stand individually, give people a platform to talk, you know, have someone like yourself on the show to talk about this openly. I don't know what else to do. Um, uh, you know, I'm not going to like suit up and patrol the streets. I mean, that's, you know, supposedly we have people who do that. This is, the, I mean, maybe a segue into my into my book is is that we, me and, me and Tianlon, um, the writer, you know, Chinatown, Chinatown has has had a uh, it hasn't been it hasn't been always just an optimistic story of Chinatown, right? Like Chinatown has been a story of actually perseverance. Um, it, it's been a story of uh, getting through some very very dark times as well. Um, the racism and um, xenophobia. Um, was, I mean, the things that we were reading of the history of of some of what was happening, you know, in Chinatown, people were being killed all the time. Um, and there were no repercussions because they were killing a Chinese person. And, um, and a Chinese person at that time just didn't have the same rights, didn't have really like um, any, any ability to, um, to voice their their, not only voice their their um, maybe frustration or um, but actually having anything that comes of it like that that just didn't happen for years and years and years and so um, you know the the story of Chinatown um, that we wanted to write about we wanted to recognize some of what was the history of Chinatown. Um, in a sense of the struggles that it went through um, as a community. Um, but, but we wanted to, to also try to write it a story that um, was optimistic too, because this is like a, it's, it's not just, 
you know, this is a elite, you know, a, a living, breathing community that that is still very much thriving. And I think wanting to make sure that we have a story that that people um, know that that there's that we do have optimism about the future of Chinatown and our, and our community. Um, but we but especially what's happening now, we can't forget the stories and and we can't forget the history of what this what our community has gone through to get us to this point and still the work that we need to do present day of continuing to actually be treated equally. Um, and and I, I think that's that's just maybe um, what I'm learning right now is that 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 is going to be um, part of part of um, our advocacy is 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 talking about Americanism and and equality is is really the issue that we're talking about and being tr- treated fairly. You know the same things that that we were really in support of with 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 Black Lives Matters is is that you know until anyone is treated equal, no one is no one's treated equally until everyone is right. So I'm hopeful that that um, people that believe in that um, will continue to fight for that. The first time I think it really struck me, and this is going to be kind of an abstract uh, rambling question, but I think you'll understand where I'm coming from. Um, uh, you know, Huni Kim, who's a Korean uh, chef here in New York, he has a couple of really great restaurants. He's very well known in Korea, although his home is in New York and he grew up in New York. Um, uh, he was born in Korea. Um, but, you know, I think the first time this hit me was when I was interviewing Huni on this show. And, um, you know, he would talk about a feeling of, and I don't think it was violence, but, you know, he was more likely to maybe be picked on or singled out or something like that as a kid. And he always felt better when there were other Asian people around. And what struck me about that was, you know, as we're here in 2021, I mean, even in food, right, it's become very, it's a sign of being unsophisticated to refer to, you know, quote unquote, Asian food, you know, when you, when you lump, cuisines together that way. Um, uh, you know, it shows a certain uh, a certain lack of understanding that we're talking about a number of different countries and they each have their own culture and they each have their own, you know, cuisine. And, and But I am struck by the number of people I've spoken to whose heritage is from one of, you know, several different Asian countries that they often use You've done it in this interview. They, they'll use the term Asian and applying it to themselves and to the larger community. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just wondering, it seems to me like this moment in the worst possible way illustrates, uh, again, this is a very abstract thing. I don't even know if it's a question, but to me it kind of illustrates the, the thinking behind why I've heard so many people do that over the last several years in interviewing people is you know, whether or not it was anything explicit, I almost wonder if it almost was just on a, like an intuitive level that it, it just, you know, it felt better when you were surrounded by other people of the, who shared kind of a general background with you. Does that make sense? I mean, I think it's human nature um, to just feel more comfortable with people that look like you. Uh, 
I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of just, I feel like, um, you know, something I, I remember learning in, in psychology class in college. Um, I, I never really necessarily f- like thought I had a, a feeling like that, like maybe what you're describing with, with, with Huni having, um, I, I grew up in, in, in a group of friends that, that, um, there, there wasn't, you know, another, we were all very different. Um, uh, and, um, we came from very different backgrounds. Um, but we were all kind of, we, we were all really close friends in high school. And, and, um, so actually for me going to college, um, in Southern California, that, that was actually primarily like, it was like 50% Asian. Like I, it was actually strange for me to feel, to, to, to be there, um, and not have as many, I think other friends, um, that, that, you know, I, I purposely sought out, um, like not just Asian friends because I, I wanted to maintain a very diverse, um, very diverse friendships with people. Um, and, um, I, I, I didn't think those kind of clubs that were like, you know, Asian clubs that were, were just clubs because people were Asian. Um, I like, there's a comfortability I can understand to that, but I never gravitated to that. Um, and I don't know if that's a complicated part of me trying to be more American um, in a way, I, I don't know, like, I haven't really maybe deciphered like all of those, uh, those, those kind of feelings. I, I guess what I, all I was getting at was I feel like this moment we're in now, uh, in the worst way to me justified those feelings that others have expressed to me. Um, and I guess in your answer, I mean, I have to think you're going to tell me the answer is yes. And it's, it's really, um, Sad for me, but, you know, I wonder if when you look back on, you know, your feeling about those kinds of things, if if you think maybe in hindsight you were, you know, if you were, I mean, I hate to use a word like naive, but I wonder if you think maybe you were a little naive about not your own feelings about being, you know, uh, the American part of being Asian American, but about whether or not you were, you know, just there was blanket acceptance of that. Um, and I feel like, I mean, do you feel when you look back at, you know, from the vantage point of this moment, do you think, do you feel like you were a little, I mean, do you feel like you were naive about it? I don't mean that at all in a critical way, but I almost don't see how you couldn't feel that way. I mean, naivety has, uh, has kind of served me well in, in a lot of instances. Um, I think if I knew what I was getting myself into with opening the restaurant, um, if I knew exactly all the contracts that I was signing, what they actually meant, um, you know, I, I think, I think I probably wouldn't have just forged through. And, and, and I think in the same, in the same kind of way, like, I think being a little naive, but also having aspirations, um, that, that, you know, you, you can't, always look at what is, um, on face value, um, and to wish and aspire, um, to a society that is, that is more equal, more fair and, and completely acceptant of whoever you are. 
um, that's okay for me to be a little naive in, to believe that. Um, that that's okay for me to try to aspire to that myself. Um, will everyone around me believe that? No, I'm not. I'm not naive in, in thinking that that is just going to change overnight, or 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 that everyone is going to be, um, or everyone would have that same kind of feeling. But there's enough people that I know that's around me that believe in that, and that um, I think by seeing you know our community, um, you know whether whether it's Black Lives Matter or you know stop you know AAPI hate like the same movement is the movements are saying the same thing that we that we just believe in 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 equality and that we um, are fed up with not being treated equally. So I think um, I think we I think we have to have that belief. Um, whether it's it's naive or not, um, I think I'll be okay with 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 being naive if if um, we actually get to experience more of that in in um, in our in our life. So let's talk about your book for a minute. You know, there's there's um, there's a lot of big stuff, but you know, before you even get to any of the text, right? Um, on the cover, and I'll, I've said this in the intro, but again, it's Mr. Jews in Chinatown. Um, and you know, right on the cover recipes and stories from the birthplace of Chinese American food. That's a big phrase. Um, you know, you mention uh, right up front that, that San Francisco's Chinatown mm -hmm. is America's oldest Chinatown. Um, which I'm not, sh I probably would have guessed that, but I don't know mm -hmm. that I knew that, uh, for certain. Um, uh, and then, you know, I think very, I, I listen, having, having collaborated on a lot of cookbooks myself, you know, those first pages of a cookbook are so important. Often that's where, because at some point, most cookbooks, you know, you're, you're, then you're, you know, there's, you know, a hundred or so pages of, of recipes, you know, at some point it's recipes, but the stuff that frames the recipes and gives it that personal context, it's so important. And, you know, the opening, what they call the front matter of this book is very, it's very rich, I think. Thanks. You intertwine your own, uh, like your own personal story, your family's story, the story of your restaurant with kind of the history of the of the Chinese American experience. I mean, the 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 story you tell about the space uh, where your restaurant is. Um, I mean, it's almost novel. You know, it's almost like a novel. Uh, uh, and without spoiling too much, I mean, it's not a novel. So I feel like I can say this, but. <laughs> You know, when you look at that, when you looked at that space, uh, you know, you talk about it wasn't until I guess it was upstairs. Uh, mm -hmm. Would we call it a banquet room? Well, I don't know exactly. Yeah. yeah. So when you get up, it wasn't until you get upstairs that you realize you'd been in that space yeah. when you were much, much younger. Um, and, you know, this space has been a couple of different restaurants, you know, over time. Um, you know, the implication, of course, is that maybe at some point, you know, a hundred years from now, some young kid will come in there looking at it and, <laughs> yeah. you know, they'll realize it had been seven or eight restaurants over the years. Right. And one of them was yours. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you are you very, um, you know, it's the classic thing they teach you in writing class show. Don't tell. Right. But you you make the point through this very compelling story right up front that you're part of a continuum. Um, and that to me was so powerful. And I'd love if you could just speak to that for a second, because. Uh, to me, that is such a, 
if there's a, such a thing as a narrative through line to a cookbook, that's that's kind of because you do get into then, you know, stuff about grandparents, both specific to yourself and in general. Yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 how that affects um, Chinese, you know, cooking and how it affected your own repertoire. Yeah. When when I started to really gain an understanding of of the history of the building, um, I really saw um, kind of the, just the role of 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 the restaurant. Um, it it was it was to really try to continue the legacy of the the, the businesses that had been there before me, um, but also just to recognize like those two restaurants that were before me, they were also very contemporary at the time of, the, of, the, of their opening um, and, and, and their um, operation really. Um, and they were on the forefront of, of, um, of service and um, of, of really social gatherings that that were being held in restaurants and um and and really a community fixture uh within chinatown so knowing that that that's the legacy of the building i i realized what our restaurant in order to try to continue what had been there before um that we we had to be that accessible as well to people what I was looking for, actually, for 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 a while in my in my career, um, was to have the food that we were making, uh, that I was making, uh, be more meaningful. Understanding that that um, really Chinese American cuisine was was really the first cuisine to mix a cultural cultural techniques in culinary arts with American products that mentality had not existed before that was really empowering for me as a chef to just understand that to feel like we could um continue that that um uh that kind of uh train of thought with with the chefs that were there um before me there was a lot of strength in understanding uh what was before um uh in Chinatown, um, that was, that, that kind of really helped me, um, just kind of feel like we were continuing something rather than creating something. Um, and, and I think that's, that's essentially what I was looking for with, with cooking, because that's, that's, that was kind of my, you know, the, the, the my favorite things about cooking was, was its homage to people and place and history. And I had felt like some of the cooking that I was doing right before, um, where this, there was like this Californian kind of, you know, cooking exploration that was like, okay, um, there's these, you know, the plates were very um, abstract. You know, there was textures instead of actually i think like residents and in, in in like um historic um uh combinations um and 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 having a dish come together 
um, sometimes uh, was was just like a like a kind of a chef flexing um, kind of technique instead of actually the recipe paying homage to 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 really just a a great version of a very traditional food. So, you know, finding um, ways that we could be creative to me just was digging into uh, the pantry in in Chinese cuisine. So, you know, all of all of those those sauces and even like you know Chinese sausage and Chinese bacon and all these things that we we knew that if we started to learn how to make those ourselves that that would be a really good basis for um uh you know being more just being creative within those structures well i have to say at the same time for anybody who hears you say that and thinks well i can't i'm not going to do all that um uh you know you do in the book and, and this is you know i love Listen, I, I collaborated on whew, close to 30 chef cookbooks. I haven't I haven't actually done a cookbook in about six or seven years, but I did a lot in a very concentrated amount of time. And, um, you know, chefs who don't kind of bend, I mean, there's always going to be a place for the, the souvenir cookbook where, you know, here's how we did it and you're not really meant to do it at home, right? Unless you're crazy. Um, but... I, I really appreciate when a chef, you know, does a cookbook and does um, acknowledge the realities of home cooking. And you do make a point in this book of saying, you know, make what you can. And, and here's some recipe, you know, here are some recipes if you want to go for it for some of this stuff. But, you know, there's no shame in buying a product that others have spent, you know, a lifetime um, for generations, you know, perfecting and they've now bottled it or packaged it or whatnot and, and using that. And you, you know, you, it's stated so, um, you know, matter of factly in the book, but that's a huge statement to me. Again, it comes very early in the book, but it's a huge statement, um, about, uh, the rules of engagement here, right? You're not going to insist that people, um, you know, do everything that you do in your restaurant in order to find success from your cookbook. At the same time, you do recommend that they should probably own a walk, you know? Um, yeah, and, yeah. and I think that's fair. I think that's very fair because that will make a difference. And then you spend, I'm looking at it here. I mean, you know, you even have a little essay, a pan is not a walk. I mean, that's, you know, you, <laughs> you defend what you're saying, right? You explain it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's all, um, I think that's all, uh, very well uh, laid out in the book. And I think it basically, you know, cooks of all levels and time um, uh, constraints can come to this and, and find, you know, a lot of joy in here. Um, I should probably Thanks. wrap it up here, Brandon, but I, I'm so sure. glad you yeah. came on. Uh, you know, it's Thanks. really funny. I was thinking about getting ready to talk to you. This is this is the third time you've been on the show. Uh, it's weird <laughs> because we've never done a straight up, you know, feature you know, deep dive biographical interview with you. You were on when I did the live show at, at the San Francisco cooking school. Right. Uh, that was a tribute yeah. to, to Judy Rogers, the late Judy Rogers, who you worked for. Um, you did one yeah. of our special reports during the pandemic about a year ago. Um, and now you're here today, but you know, I am, I am getting vaccinated this week. My first shot. Um, I am starting to plot a visit yeah. to California. 
Um, oh yeah. So next time cool. I get to San Francisco, maybe we can sit down in person and do, you know, finally do a proper, you know, biographical conversation with you. That sounds great. And thanks for talking. To, I mean, the cookbook was a pleasure. Thanks for being willing to talk about, you know, some of the more um, fraught stuff, uh, you know, with me. I, I, like I said, I think I just think it's important to talk about it. I didn't expect you and I were going to solve the world's problems. Um, but I think I just think dialoguing about this stuff is really in a public way is I think it has its place. And um, so I thank you for doing that with me. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Appreciate it. Nobody's ever asked me that question. It's a good one. I feel really seen. <laughs> it's great talking to you because you don't ask me what my favorite kitchen tool is or what my favorite <laughs> ingredient is to work with. You're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs, an independent podcast. We'll be right back. This was very enjoyable. Thank yeah, you. that was a pleasure. We'll see you again. God, I hope so. Thank you again to Brandon Jew for joining us today. I really appreciated it. And I would encourage you to pick up his book. Again, it is titled Mr. Jew's in Chinatown. It's available wherever cookbooks are sold and it's wonderful. I highly recommend it. So our feature guest this week is Lisa Bet Suma. Lisa Bet, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is with the Big Time Restaurant Group in South Florida. They have about 15 restaurants. Most of them are in that region. And Lisa Bet is someone who started cooking back at a time that I, as many of you know, am fascinated by. I wrote a whole book about it. She started cooking in uh, the very late 70s slash early 80s, originally in Chicago. She was what we now would call a career switcher. Originally, she thought she was going to be an actress, discovered the kitchen, shifted gears, eventually found her way down to Florida, where she has been for a long time. And she is currently the executive culinary director of Big Time Restaurant Group. And she is also the co-chef and partner of two of their restaurant concepts, Louis Bossi. How's that for a name for an Italian restaurant? Perfect, right? Louis Bossi and separately, Elisa Betta's, which is named for her. She explains that in the interview. I got to tell you, I loved this conversation. It was, I felt like I was talking to an old friend. Uh, I do mistakenly say in this interview that she and I had never spoken before and she was polite enough not to correct me about that on the air. But at one point we were talking about something during the interview and it, and in my mind I thought, oh my God, I actually have spoken to this person before. Several years ago, Lisa Bett reached out to me when my last book came out and invited me if I was ever gonna be passing through South Florida to come maybe do a book signing or speak to the troops at her restaurant or to the restaurant group. Uh, it didn't work out. I, I don't know why I don't remember that. I'm usually much better at that. Maybe, I don't know. It, it was a very frantic time. I was doing most of the PR for the book myself and organizing a whole tour. So maybe, I don't know. I felt bad about it. But anyway, she couldn't have been more gracious about it. But we did talk about that at the end of the interview. I also have to give a huge thank you to a former guest of the show, filmmaker Joanna James, who came on shortly before the pandemic last year to talk about her movie, A Fine Line, about women chefs, a movie that focused largely on her mom, Val James, connected me with Lisa Bett. And I'm so glad she did. Uh, Joanna's a huge fan of hers and now... I am as well. I think you're going to love this conversation. 
Uh, she is someone who, although she is fast approaching the age of 60, a milestone that she will hit this year, is super engaged, super energetic, super motivated to try new things. She gets into all of that in the interview, so I won't spoil any of it now. But I, I think for anyone out there, whether or not you're a cook or whatever you do, I find it very inspiring to talk to someone who manages to keep their professional pursuit as fresh as she has. And it seems so obvious when you hear her describe it. I think what it amounts to is she just loves what she does. I think that's the simple way of doing it. But a lot of people don't really manage to keep it this exciting for themselves as she has. And I think that's the big takeaway from this conversation. But before I get to the interview, I have to ask, I've asked it before, I'm going to ask it again. Have you guys checked out Mies yet? If you listen to us regularly, then you know that Mies recently joined us as one of the sponsors of Andrew Talks to Chefs. Mies is a revolutionary new interactive recipe database. It is designed by a former professional chef for professional chefs and cooks. I promise if you deal with recipes as part of your professional life, Mies will save you time and money and make managing, teaching, and altering recipes easier than it has ever been, whether you have a single restaurant or run a large restaurant group. Please, if you need to, pause the podcast and go do it right now. Check them out, and you can sign up for a free trial at GetMeez. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com slash Andrew. So with that, here is my interview with Lisabeth Suma. Here you go. I'm thrilled to have you here. Uh, you and I have never spoken before. Nope, this is the first time. I'm equally thrilled to talk to you. Thank you. And you've been, I have to say, I don't want to get into all the very flattering detail, but you're a listener to the show, I gather. I am, and have been for a long time, and a and follower of the blog before the podcast. Oh, the Toklam blog. Wow. Well, I'm glad to have you here. As as you may or may not know, you're in my home state. I actually grew up in Southern Florida in Coral Gables. Really? I, I did not know that. It's true. I was there from ages two to 17. I'm envious of you being there right now in terms of the weather must be pretty nice this time of year, I'm imagining. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a Florida spring. It's cool, clear, absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. Great, uh, Gardening weather, one of my hobbies. Yeah, I've read up on you. You have a you have a garden at your home. Yeah, a small vegetable garden. I'm an aspiring vegetable garden. <laughs> well, as as you know, if you've been listening to the show, uh, you know I have been starting interviews, and I would like to do it with you. We're still in the midst of this uh, nightmare we've all been living through. Although, in a lot of respects, I think in a lot of places, uh, you know, I think we're all starting to maybe exhale just a little bit. But how how are you? How have you weathered the storm down there? Why well, should be careful talking to someone in Florida? Um, weathering the storm can often mean something else. But how how have you weathered the pandemic uh, down there, both yourself personally and the restaurant group? It's been cataclysmic to so many communities and businesses, and we have we have fared better than than so many, um, having been open through most of it. Um, the, the state being open, the restaurants being open. We were shut down uh, almost exactly a year ago for about six weeks. And uh, then we, when we reopened, it was outside only. 
we did the to-go thing. And just as we were pivoting to what else we needed to do, whether it was more of the provision model that so many people are doing or really making significant deep changes to the menu for more to-go appropriate fare, um, we got indoor dining at 25%. And so that, and in quick succession, really, over the next probably mm, two months, we went up to 100% dining as with masks. So in the very beginning of that, um, which was probably around in June, you know, you had some customer pushback, people weren't used to that. And but that really went away very quickly. And we had robust um, diners in in the outdoor dining spaces, which in South Florida, we have quite a lot of outdoor dining. And, um, you know, it was slow inside, but we felt uh, that we had, at that point, you know, gotten through the, the really bad part of it. And, and, and I think luckily, like so many people didn't have a sense of the duration of this thing, or maybe it would have been just too disheartening. Um, because here we are a year later and, and I don't think any of us really could have, you know, from where we were sitting then said, we're going to be going, we're going to be in this for a year. So yeah, it feels like we can exhale now. Like we're, we're coming out of it. We built a restaurant during the pandemic, which was interesting. That was already on the launch pad for build. I mean, it was planned and then you, you all went, went, decided to go along with the continue the plan. Yeah, we built a huge restaurant in downtown West Palm Beach, which is sort of the, the stomping grounds, the provenance of our, our restaurant group that I run is in uh, West Palm. And the property came up that was waterfront. We fell in love with it. It was, it was big. It, it was audacious because it's so big. And it's not that big of a community. Um, it is a growing um, town. It has a lot of attributes have recently been added to it, um, a great fine hotel, a world-class art museum, performing arts center, convention hotel. So the, the community in the town of West Palm Beach is really growing, but it was, it was audacious. It was an audacious move. We, we struggled with it. And uh, then we signed a lease and, and, you know, right before we broke ground, this happened. And uh, as you know, you know, that's the ink, the ink had dried. And so we weren't, we weren't backing out and it wasn't going to slow down either because in Florida at the time, construction workers were essential workers. So we thought, well, maybe it'll slow down. The project will slow down and give us time to catch up and uh, no such luck. So it was full steam ahead building a restaurant uh, during the entire summer and fall of the pandemic here. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I, I've had some of them on the show. I mean, John Winterman was on our last episode. He finished construction on a restaurant in Brooklyn uh, during the pandemic. I mean, we've, we've had people on the show who have done that and opened. And I mean, my hat's off to you and to everyone else who managed to do that. I can only imagine <laughs> um, the curveballs, the stress, the, 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 you know, the, we were all dealing with the unknown, but to be doing that in the middle of this unknowable time is um i just think that's so impressive so lisa bet take us take us back take us back because again i i i have i have read up on you but your first time visitor to the show and it is our first conversation uh, just if you would tell tell us a little bit about you know where you were born and 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 where and what the circumstances of your young part of your upbringing were i'm uh reaching uh, the laudable age of 60 this year 
Um, so I've been doing this for 40 years professionally, and I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. So uh, we like to say Midwest is best. <laughs> there's a lot of truth to that statement. I, I mean, I, I'm an Easterner, but I have to say there's a lot of truth to that. A great, great restaurant town. And um, early on, I was enamored with cooking. I think as so many young girls are um, working in the kitchen with their mom, but, but more so than that, I mean, I really remember having an extreme interest in the whole genre. Um, I was in like accelerated classes and in, in junior high and got to choose all, you know, independent studies reports. And, and uh, I remember doing an independent study report on the history of spaghetti much to the light of the teachers as a project, you know, culminated in bringing a whole spaghetti dinner to, to the teacher's lounge. But there was something there from the very beginning. I mean, I just love cooking. Um, my, my family are all um, in different arts fields. My brother is a videographer. My sister is a graphic artist. My mother was a costume designer. My father worked for WTTW public television in Chicago um, for a long time as a writer and director. And I studied acting. I was in acting my whole young life, elementary school, all of that. And then uh, after college, um, really switched and and started working in a really great French restaurant in a suburb of Chicago and just fell in love with it. And, uh, and that was like 1979. And I, I really haven't looked back. It's been a, a long vast, uh, varied career that I'm still in love with and excited by. It's really striking looking at, I mean, you're involved in uh, so many restaurants with the restaurant group that you're a part of, but uh, you, you have to have a real, and I mean, it sounds like a cliche, right? But you have to have a passion for it to work as hard as you're working after having been at it for this long. But before we get to all that, can we just talk for a second? Because I was a former theater kid. I wasn't a very good actor. I was much more comfortable directing and, and even producing. But uh, what kind of actor were you uh, growing up? Like, did you do musical comedy? Were you, did you do more serious, dramatic kind of things? Did you do all of it? What was your lane? Yeah, n I mean, non-professionally, but as um, a hobby in school and involved with all the local community theaters, I was into all the genres. And I think that, that is that, you know, that belies um, my cooking career, because I'm a bit of a dilettante where I dabble in a lot of genres. I mean, it, American actors, I feel much like American cooks, they have to be a triple threat. You know, so people need to be proficient in dancing and singing and dramatic arts. And certainly there was a idea that, you know, commercial uh, television success was as venerable to launch a career as as theatrical success. You know, so there was a whole were you were you going to do stage? Were you going to do television? Were you going to do movies? But um, that was it wasn't long live, but it provided a. Um, it was just a foundation for a lot of fun and recreation. And I guess I feel like the, the intensity of the, the theater and, and spending my summers, you know, completely immersed in productions and, and the whole rhythm of it, you know, a lot of practice, a lot of learning, a lot of uh, time and, and the specificity of that, that dark room, the theater. And, and, 
And then, you know, it translates to me to how I spend my time in the kitchen is very, very focused. You know, it's a thing of immediacy. The curtain goes up every night, you have service, and then it's over and, you know, closure. So it's a, for me, there was always that parallel. I'm not sure if that really, if you ever thought about it like that in your career. Oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, I used to do a podcast called The Front Burner with my friend Jimmy Bradley, who's a, a chef and restaurateur. And he used to say theater and restaurants are the, I mean, to add to the list of commonalities that you just rattled off, you know, the, uh, the show must go on, right? I mean, uh, restaurants open. <laughs> I mean, no matter what occurs during a day leading into the evening, a restaurant's going to open. I mean, unless it's just an absolute uh, technical, physical impossibility, like there was a fire or it's flooded or something that dramatic, you know, much like a show will go on, you know, they have understudies and all kinds of crazy things uh, and systems that keep a, a play able to, you know, be put on every night, every night that it's scheduled to restaurants open every night. I mean, it's a very rare thing for a restaurant to announce they're not open on a given night at the last second. I, I think that, um, you know, I, I just hit a point in, in my professional education. I was at the Goodman School of Drama where I didn't see a clear path and um, dropped out of school, went back home, uh, moved in with my parents and got a job working in a restaurant. And, uh, and I got more and more serious about that. And I really didn't look back. So it's been it's been a happy long career, you know, and and varied enough to keep me interested because, I mean, gosh, what was going on then in Chicago in the nineteen the early eighties when I started working in restaurants is so, I mean, it was groundbreaking for that time and that place, but it, it, people were really um, reflecting on what was happening with new American cuisine in California. And at that time, Andrew, in, in 1980 in Chicago, I was working with Norman Van Aken. Yeah, I need to ask you about this. Well, first of all, I mean, can we just, you, you just kind of alluded to it a little, but I'd love for you to just say a little more before we get to that about, you know, Chicago today is one of the food certainly one of the restaurant capitals of the United States, right? I mean, there's a lot, I mean, it, it's probably where the, uh, the modernist movement has its greatest um, foothold is in Chicago, for sure. Um, there are three-star Michelin restaurants in Chicago. There are beloved neighborhood restaurants in Chicago. Uh, the Beard Awards, when they come back, whenever that's going to be, um, you know, the last five or six years were in Chicago. But you know, at the dawning of the 1980s, I mean, we're still seven years from Charlie Trotter, who I also know you, you knew when he was younger. Um, but, you know, we're seven years away from Trotter's. We're seven years away from Rick Bayless opening his first restaurant. Um, you know, the, the city hadn't really broken in the way we think of it today, right? So what what was just the restaurant landscape there? I mean, was it was it still kind of like locked into kind of the old like the old steakhouses and things like that. What 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 did Chicago have to offer in the way of restaurants to a young person who, you know, was deciding to make this potentially their professional life? Well, you mentioned Charlie, Charlie Trotter. So Charlie Trotter was a line cook at the first restaurant that I worked in with Norman Van Aken. And this was in the suburbs of Chicago. So the restaurant was built and owned and operated by Marshall Field from Marshall Field's fame. And, um, you know, what, like I said, Norman was 
really doing things that were quite groundbreaking in terms of um, a strong nod, I think, to what was happening in California with the the notion of um, doing things yourself and an American cuisine. And I had one gig before that where I'd worked in a classically French restaurant. So I remember that um, Charlie and I would just get in these really heady arguments about the notion of new American cuisine and what is it versus French cuisine and traditional cuisine and classic cuisine and how much of a, a, a baseline of, of understanding of technique and knowledge and repertoire you needed to have before you could, you know, be considered a serious chef. And so there are these very very heady sort of intellectual um, ideas that were the approach to analyzing what was happening in California. And people like Norman, I think, were very, you know, influential in creating this this wild circular motion of 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 movement, of training people and inciting people to be part of, of what was happening in California as it was sort of whipping across the state and becoming more mainstream. I mean, downtown Chicago, you didn't have the West Loop area that you have now where all of like Paul Kahn's restaurants are, which are fabulous, Stephanie Izzard. That whole scene now is and has been, you know, fabulous and made Chicago so much more than just a second city. But I mean, back in the 80s, when I was working downtown, I was at uh, a version of Maxime's restaurant in um, from from Paris. So restaurateurs were doing, you know, a knockoff of that concept. And then I think it was very much like New York in, in the 70s, um, mostly continental, certainly from the whole stockyards point of view of Chicago's um, nascent uh, industries. There was a lot of steakhouses and a lot of that um, type of type of establishment and fine dining French. But I mean, between what was happening then and now, well, I mean, yeah, it was happened everywhere between then and now has been the emergence of so many different types of, of dining experiences and restaurants. So Chicago has seen a huge change, but I go back to dine. Uh, my husband's children are there and uh, I actually went back to work at um, one of Paul Kahn's restaurants, a publican to, about five years ago to study um, sourdough bread production, just something that I hadn't really focused on in my career. And I wanted to learn that. And then I took that program and that information and built on it and, and um, put that program into place with the help of a young baker there who's brilliant. Um, her name is Amber Felton, and she actually just moved down here to South Florida. But we implemented that sourdough production program into um, our Italian restaurants now where we're making all the bread with artisan sourdough that's so great so you went i mean can we did you go and do a stage is that what we would call this at this point in your career yeah. good for you yeah at the, at the ripe old age of you know 55 or something i mean i think amber when she saw me walk into the bakery at seven o'clock well i remember she told me that they didn't even tell her i was coming like they neglected in, in, in typical sort of restaurant disorganized yeah 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 this chick said she wants to come work with you but i don't know who knows if she'll show up so I show up at, you know, seven o'clock at night for this late night baking shift. And uh, I spent, I probably spent just a week with her. And then about a year and a half later, I was, I went back to see her again. And I said, hey, I'm opening an Italian restaurant in South Florida. I want to do, you know, an artisan baking program. And I want you to come down and consult with us and work with us and get the restaurant open, which she did. And then we stayed in touch and we become fast friends. I mean, I think of her 
as like a daughter. I never, I never had children of my own. Um, you know, I think I was too busy in the kitchen, obviously a huge issue for young female chefs now to, you know, not miss out on that part of their lives. But, uh, I was pretty focused on work. And so, yeah, she, um, she taught us how to do that. And, uh, we, we have the starter that she brought with her on the plane from Chicago and it's gone through four generations. Um, and, uh, we're still making the bread from that original starter. I love it. I love everything about that story. I have to ask before I get too far from it, the, the restaurant where you worked with Norman and Charlie, was that the restaurant that Carrie Nahabedian was at? Yes. Carrie was there for a while. I didn't know Carrie. Really that was well. the same restaurant. Yeah. 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 Um, yes. It seems like everybody, a lot of people came out of that restaurant, um, and went on to some really celebrated careers. Um, but I stayed in the shadows. <laughs> but Carrie, okay. Carrie, of course, did really well. Charlie, you know, a legend. Norman, a legend. What brought you down to Florida? Was it was it the Norman connection? How'd you first end up down there? Yeah, it's a branch from Sinclair's, Sinclair's restaurant. So Gordon Sinclair, who was a Chicago restaurateur, started this restaurant with Norman Van Aken and Marshall Field. And they brought the whole entourage concept and everything down to Jupiter Beach, Florida. And um, I was in between gigs. I had been working at Maxime's, looking to move on. I mean, at that point, I think this is quite usual for a young chef. You sort of propel yourself from one job to the next, um, you know, in stints. You know, I'd spend a year somewhere and I feel that I had soaked up a lot of what was happening there and I needed to move on and learn something else. So I was in between jobs and uh, I got in touch with all my fr- a bunch of my friends that had moved down to South Florida and they're like, come on down. Um, I hopped on a Amtrak <laughs> training, <laughs> went through went through Philadelphia, from Chicago to Philadelphia to get to Florida. I have to ask, do you have a fear of flying or why, why the Amtrak? No, I, I, think, I, I think it was cheaper, you know. It was certainly not as direct. And Norman and Janet, his wife, picked me up at the train station in West Palm Beach. And uh, and I went to work the next morning. And it was just a we were at the, the Jupiter Beach Resort, which it was like a hotel. And uh, I stayed there. And then, then Norman left and went to South Beach. And, and then this whole other thing happened and started moving around and working. What year do you get to Florida, roughly? Like 1983. Wow. So, how? I mean, talk about, we were just talking about how Chicago has changed. I mean, even Florida has changed uh, certain areas of it anyway. I grew up in, in the Miami area. Um, but, you know, coming from the Midwest down to Florida, first of all, do you remember what part of the year you arrived? Oh, yeah. It was Easter. Oh, so right around now. Yeah. I mean, I left the gray, the, the snow, the you know, the gray snow, the, the sleet, the hail, the, the dark days. I left all of that and, you know, dipped my toes into the ocean. I'd never, growing up on the shores of Lake Michigan, I had never been in the ocean before. And I just fell in love with it. And um, and I stayed and for a, a really long time. But the the thing is, is you're right. In Florida, it was it was like the pioneer days. Like, I could not believe even Chicago wasn't that sophisticated um, in terms of the restaurant scene. But boy, Florida was backwards. I mean, I was working at a fine dining French restaurant. There's a, a chef and general manager and all these people to come down from Montreal. We didn't even have fresh herbs. I mean, you could not buy fresh herbs. Fresh fish was flown in from Europe. 
you know, I mean, the entire landscape of what was going on was was so people. And that's what I try to explain sometimes to young cooks in my company. They don't have the perspective. They don't understand how far we've come in the past 30 years. I mean, we have gone from the dark ages to such evolved um concepts in restaurants and cooking we didn't have any oil except olive oil i mean it was just like you couldn't find walnut oil and and you couldn't find you couldn't buy risotto arboreal rice you know i remember the french chef making risotto with um uncle ben's converted rice and, and you know things were happening where daniel Ballou was using arboreal rice and making Italian risotto. And, and, uh, you know, it was all about New York at that point for me, what was happening in New York and the involvement of new American cuisine and branching off from California that I tried to keep my eye on, you know, and, and keep up with what was going on. But I was happy living in South Florida. That's, that was for sure. I love the climate. I hate the cold. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, even if you could have put your hands on like arborio rice or something, you wouldn't. Have, you would have had a hard time selling risotto on a menu at that time, right? I mean, people didn't know what this stuff. Nobody was clamoring for it. People didn't know what it was unless they were like real, like Italian, you know, either from Italy or people who like vacationed there, right? It wasn't. The stuff was all just starting to find its way onto quote unquote, like you said, new American menus. Uh, it was very unusual still to see these things outside of, um, you know, an Italian context. You know, I remember years ago, the late Jonathan Gold, uh, during the brief time that he was the uh, restaurant critic for Gourmet Magazine, writing an appreciation of Gotham Bar and Grill. And, you know, he said, I remember distinctly reading this, you know, like if you... You know, he said something like, if you enjoy seeing things like couscous and risotto, and, and he named a few other things, you know, on a, on, a, on a typical American menu, Gotham's one of the restaurants you can thank for that. Well, Gotham opened in 1984, you know, um, and just to contextualize all this, I mean, we it, it does seem this stuff is also solidified now, but, you know, in the big picture, it wasn't all that long ago that it wasn't the case, you know? And I mean, it, again, you were right there when at the turning point. And Alfred Portale and people like that that were doing that in New York were ground, groundbreaking. And and you continue to see these huge strides in, um, in the evolution of cooking happening today, which is why I think that from that point of new American cuisine, sort of the kickoff, if you want to attribute it to what was happening in California and that culinary movement, um, or what was happening with the influx of great French chefs um, and other European chefs in New York City and the convergence of those two movements. I I really think that that was the kickoff, right? And it, it coincides about a decade after what was happening in France and Europe with, um, with a Michelin guide and, and really people starting to travel to eat and spreading um, their information and their ideas and Jean-Louis Paladin coming to the United States. But it's still happening now, which is, I think, why I've been engaged for, you know, low these 40 years in being a chef. You mean it's still it's still evolving? The innovation. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about the emergence of, of dishes, 
based on ingredients that were hard to procure or find or not, you know, so familiar to the American um, audience like couscous or, or arboreal rice. Look at what's happening now with grains. I mean, it is so exciting. I, I get goosebumps thinking about it. You know, I just got a grain mill and um, at home. So I've got a lot of different, you know, piles of, of grains that I'm experimenting with grinding for the restaurant. But People that are doing this in the restaurants, grinding their own eclectic alternative grains and using them for their bread production, like that's like another level of shit that crazy that I love. And there's just so much to continue to learn and and see what's happening, you know, and these people that are so innovative. I, I just love it. That's why I've been able to stick to being a chef and running this this company for 25 years. I, I do need to ask you, it's so funny that you spent this early time with Charlie and with Norman, right? Because you're talking about um, two avid readers, right? And if I if what I've read about you is accurate, please tell me if it's not, but that description would apply to you as well. You're a real, uh, you're a real lover of the written word. Yeah. It's true. And I am surrounded um, by my cookbooks. I mean, there's a stack uh, by my dining table. There's a stack by my bed. There's a stack in my office. I'm constantly buying them and taking them around to the other restaurants, giving them to the chefs. I mean, I, I research indefatigably. About 10 years ago, my restaurant group decided to open um, a Mexican restaurant called Rocco's Tacos. And our ownership expanded and we took on a partner who came to us, whose name is Rocco, with this concept. And and the first thing that I did, so this was sort of a reaction to the downturn in the economy at that time and, and restaurants uh, not doing that well and us wanting to do something different and something a little more um, a lower price point than what we were doing in our restaurant. So Rocco came, he brought this idea. And the first thing that I did was go out and buy Betty Fussell's book on corn. Um, and the second thing I did was order a map of Mexico and plastered on my wall. So I needed to understand everything I could about the, about the, the ingredients. I mean, of course, uh, I didn't get my head out of Diana Kennedy's books for, um, for a year and they're still my go-to for techniques and and I haven't even begun to that's why I say I'm a dilettante I haven't even begun to understand regional cuisine in Mexico it's so diverse and so complicated and what is happening with the celebration of Mexican cuisine in the United States and has been happening for like the last I don't know eight years or so uh, when Enrique Oliveira came to New York City I thought it was like the big big, big story of the year. <laughs> I thought, here's one of the most famous celebrated chefs in Mexico City, which what he's doing is groundbreaking there um, and, and so historical for the city and its culinary movement. And he's coming to New York City. And I, I just, yeah, so that was amazing to me. And I started to um, just devour every single thing I could get my hands on. And of, of course, at, at the time, it was mostly books, old books, new books. I mean, I started out my career collecting books from a woman named Jan Longone, who was in Michigan. And she had a like a pamphlet that you could order cookbooks from because there was no internet, there was no 
there was no fax, cell phones, you know, obviously podcasts. There was no food television network yet. So I had these pamphlets that I would receive. They were like a newsletter and a catalog with these really deep descriptions of the cookbooks. And then I would call her up on my phone and I would order the book. And about 15 years later, I had the chance to travel to Michigan and go to the University of Ann Arbor. We were opening a restaurant outside of Detroit, um, which is no longer there. But I took a little uh, pilgrimage and I went to the University of Ann Arbor where her cookbook collection was now part of the university's non-matriculating collection and just sat with her collection and studied her books. And that afternoon... I remember I went to Zingerman's to get a sandwich. It was just this fantastic deli. I'm sure you've heard of it. Oh, yeah. Well, they have, they're have. they very famous for their mail order business. Right. So this was in the, I don't know, the, the late 90s, I guess, that I was there. And I went by myself, and I got this uh, sandwich and a cup of soup, and I sat outside and on a picnic table outside of Zingerman's, and I was, like, blown away by the quality of what they were doing and the expansiveness of it. And I was like, this is really a very, very cool day for me. Like, I'm never going to forget this sandwich. I'm never going to forget this soup. It was so delicious. It was just a simple, simple thing. But the combination of flipping through those those um, historical cookbooks that were in her collection and then having this amazing meal at Zingerman's. And then, of course, Zingerman's became Zingerman's. I mean, they were already Zingerman's, the locals, but they just exploded in their their mail order business and their their Zing Train program, which is all about their philosophy of training management, which was also really innovative of them. I mean, I think those those guys did an amazing job with their enterprise. So you talk about, um, you know, that the evolution of the continuing evolution of of uh, what's going on in food in this country, and I guess by extent in in, in the world. Uh, is something that's kept you very engaged um, and energetic around your work. There's something that really jumped out at me, though, um, in one of the interviews I read getting ready to talk to you. And you you described what you do uh, in one of the interviews. You didn't describe uh, one of the times you gave the answer. It wasn't uh, necessarily a type of food or, 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 or a certain technique you pointed to. You said that you turn cooks into chefs. And that really jumped out at me. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to, I mean, with all the restaurants that you oversee and touch um, and make the rounds of, I mean, the the number of cooks that you must interact with on a daily basis who are at all different stages of their careers and their own personal development, I would imagine that that must be a huge part of your job. But I was struck that you... At least in one interview, pointed to that as a as a big part of what you do. Because I have this long life career, and I can look back on it through the various decades and and sort of the organic growth of of my career. You know, in the beginning, um, it's survival, right? You're trying to gain experience, but you're also paying your bills. You're on your own, and you're making these moves and these decisions, putting yourself in in these various uh, job situations to survive, and the people that you work with in the beginning of your career make a huge impression on you. And the things that you learn, um, you know, especially for young cooks who might be listening, they will be the foundation of your knowledge and your technique and your repertoire for your entire career. I mean, I draw on things that I learned uh, at 
my first jobs all the time. And then there, there's an organic process where you build on that. But through the creation of a big time restaurant group and running this um, large corporate uh, restaurant group, which is seven different concepts and over 15 different like locations for 25 years, the thing that has um, happened is that there's been a, a evolution of my career as well, where now at this point in the, the sort of late stage of the career um, is that I focus on building the team and I focus on the crew and I focus on the young cooks. And it's really not just even turning cooks into chefs. It's turning dishwashers into cooks. It's turning line cooks into sous chefs. It's turning line cooks into pastry chefs. Because, um, you know, their intelligence and their curiosity and really their modesty and their, their naivete, I applaud and I feed off of in terms of my interest in, in continuing to work so hard. I mean, it's not easy, right? We all know that about the hours and, and everything working in a, in a kitchen, but it is so rewarding. You're right. There's a lot of people. I can walk into any kitchen on any given day and just have my chef coat on, be fairly anonymous, pick up a paring knife, stand next to somebody who's peeling a case of apples and find out their story you know, where they came from, what they're doing there, what gets them excited, and, you know, a little bit about who they are. And so it helps me to stay engaged. Uh, the notion that this, there is a lot of purpose to the passing on of this time-honored tradition of the culinary arts. There, Before there were schools, this is just a a craft and an art like so many that were taught only by apprentice type of situations. And, and the nightmare stories about how hard those were um, coming out of the European training system, um, you know, need to be dispelled. And so it's with um, the sort of, I think my feminism and my elderly status in the company that I'm able to make an impression on, on some young people, which is the, the greatest really privilege of it, you know, because I know that there's a whole generation of young cooks in the West Palm Beach, Palm Beach County area, because they come back to me now and they tell me many who have continued um, in, in their careers in the culinary arts and some who have gone out and branched out and done other things that uh, their time spent in our kitchens was significant to, to them in their youth. Uh, you know, um, Michael Solomonoff, he, of Zahab in Philadelphia and all of his success in his restaurant groups and his books, he, one of his first jobs was in um, Delray Beach in our seafood restaurant, City Oyster. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yep. Yep. And Jesse Shanker, uh, uh, who had Reset and now is out on Long Island. Yeah. To, um, to Spring Street. Yep. 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 Jesse started um, with us in our restaurant, Big City Tavern in Fort Lauderdale. So, I'm not saying I had uh, a strong hand in guiding their careers. What I am saying is it's incredibly rewarding whether people stay in the industry or progress out of it to hear back from people and uh, know that their time was a, a quality experience to them. And I try to recognize that. And it's necessary to build um, a team and to get people involved in the entire process. I mean, everybody 
likes to repeat back to me these things that I tell them all the time. Like we work in the whole kitchen. You know, we really try to abolish the idea of you're only on this station and the idea that you cannot fail because on your right and on your left, because you're on the line, there's somebody who's your buddy. There's somebody who's your teammate. There's somebody who's going to hold you up. There's somebody who is going to help you. And so you can't fail. It's such a great job to have. And for so many people, so many young people, I think it's um, one of their first, you know, forays into actually the workplace. So I I really feel it's a responsibility and, you know, to create a a quality experience um, for all these young people, because I'm certainly have, you know, survived into being the senior person in the group. I'm actually the oldest person in the group. My partner's are all guys, three men, and um, they're all younger than me. I mean, you've alluded to your your kind of your age, your senior stat, like many times in this in this interview. Uh, you you don't, I mean, you don't seem at all diminished by age, right? You sound very energetic. You must be to do the work you do. And listen, I get it. I'm I'm in my mid fifties. You, you do become more aware as the older you get, the more aware you are that you're not, you know, in your twenties anymore. And it feels maybe more conspicuous than it is sometimes but uh do do you do does your work keep you as energetic as you sound or do you do do other things uh i know you garden but you know did you do you do exercise are you a yoga person are you a big walker uh if it's not too personal a question do, do you have other things in your life that help keep you able to do what is you know even if you're listen even if you're not slinging hash on a station necessarily you know anything and anything in a kitchen is physical I'm laughing because uh, I, I'm, I'm known as Dr. Suma at work because I am like the health food, healthy life, balance in your life, work balance. Like, you know, this is my, these are all my disciples to spread the word of, because you see so many people burning out in the industry. So many chefs, you know, now they're working for Cisco or doing something else because they, they burn out. So work-life balance is so important uh, for these young cooks. And I try not to, you know, paint too much of a, a, a false rosy picture of, of, about the industry. I mean, it's it's real. The grit is real. The work is real. The hours are real. But you also can have balance. And, uh, I, I, you know, you push people that you're around in different ways. But I, I think I always I try to encourage people about healthy eating. I mean, I'll talk to people about their food choices they're making. I'll talk to them about the medication they're on. We'll be chatting about how many miles they ran last night. And yeah, I, I work out. I, um, I lift weights. I do all different types of workouts and I'm pretty much a fanatic about my diet. I mean, I love that. That's one of the ways that, uh, you know, what's happening in restaurants and dining out has changed and is so interesting to me. I love all these creative concepts especially coming out of the all day cafe kind of movement in California and LA where people are eating the most amazing creations. And I love all that, that really healthy, gnarly, those bowls. And, you know, that's a really cool thing that is, that is relatively new and, and hadn't been seen before. Yeah. Agreed. Can I ask, I don't know, I don't want to ask it indelicately, but you know, for the longest time, friends of mine who have uh, owned and operated restaurants, in florida um and it does speak to i think the fact that it kind of broke as a 
you know, as a state that had real restaurant cities, quote unquote, uh, relatively late. But, you know, staffing has not always been the easiest thing down there, right? Both in the dining room and in the kitchen. And I'm just wondering, what's what's the status like down there? Like, you've got a number of restaurants to staff. Do you tend to train up? I mean, you alluded to it in this call. I mean, in this interview, you said, you know, you want to turn dishwashers into line cooks. I mean, is that as much a kind of a, a worldview that you have that you want to help people kind of progress up up the ladder in a kitchen as it is pragmatism? Like, have you had to basically develop the, the number of cooks that you need? Because um, you're in a place, I mean, just density alone. You're not in a, in a New York. You're not in a Chicago. You're not in a... LA, um, you know, it's a, it's a less populous area. Um, but it's also, uh, you know, it's not one of the places that kind of draws young cooks like a magnet the way some of the cities I just rattled off to. Yeah, we, um, we're definitely the, the, the status of, of, um, South Florida or, you know, as a culinary Mecca is, 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 uh, I would like to say it's emerging. So, and that's been a fun thing too, is to be um, a bit of a big fish in a smaller pond and to be part of, of a scene that is emerging. Uh, it has been not only worthwhile in my career to promote from within and to be a teacher and a trainer and a mentor, but obviously, as you mentioned, for the enterprise, to build the enterprise, it's necessary to grow that, that base of, um, of the chef pool and people that you, that you can promote. I mean, it's, there's a lot of opportunity when you're building a restaurant, we're building a restaurant almost every year, um, maybe every 18 months, whether it's our Italian brands that we're, we're building right now, or the Mexican brands are really the two different brands that we're focused on from the enterprise and expanding. So we need staff and certainly this is this is a cry that you hear nationwide. I mean, I think they've been talking about it on Eater and even in the New York Times in the food section. I mean, there is a well, there's a there's not a, there aren't enough uh, cooks. There aren't enough employees, and it's definitely I would say our biggest operational challenge, um, which which is okay because it just it fits right in with um, my ethos that we have to have a very highly evolved culture in the kitchen of fairness and, and treating people in an equivocal manner and giving them something of worth. Like I, I will tell people like, here's this recipe. It was, I was, you know, given it by this person and this year, here's where it fits in. Now it's yours. Take it with you. It is yours. You earned it. You own it. You know, there's this notion of, um, you know, chefs being very, uh, private about their recipes or not sharing, but I think I feel like we've broken um, that myth open, and and the whole idea of being a chef nowadays, not just for me, but for so many, is a, is about um, healthy lifestyle and about sharing and teaching and building a team, and less about the old fashioned hierarchy. Even though it it is necessary to to run these big operations. I mean, our restaurants, we have some very big restaurants, like three hundred seat restaurants. So uh, people look for promotion. They look for opportunity. And so having 15 different locations and building new restaurants all the time, we're able to, to keep 
people in the group and promote from within. I would imagine the flip side of what you're describing, at least I hope this is the case, is do you think you tend to hang on to people longer than the average? Oh, yeah. I, I almost never hire chefs. I mean, I don't think that I think I'm not doing my job if I have to hire a chef because somewhere you mean you promote from you mean you promote from within right, that there should be a sous yeah. chef that is chomping at the bit that's ready for promotion. And if I have 15 restaurants and I have all these sous chefs and I don't have a chef um, that I can promote, I haven't done my job because I should move people along that don't have the ability to be promoted because I'm very focused on the ambitions of my partners and, and myself and in, in growing the enterprise. So we have to do that. We have to constantly, it's a very, it's a dynamic situation is what I'm saying, you know, and, and so many people start out entry level jobs, whether it's prep cook or, dishwasher like the age-old story and um you know 10 years later they might be running a restaurant and the biggest success story really is my partner louis bossy so we have two italian restaurants one in fort lauderdale one in boca raton both 300 seat plus uh restaurants um very much an homage to the great italian restaurants in new york city that you would think about or mark vetri's group um, we're not reinventing the wheel. It's authentic, traditional Italian classic cuisine, right? So um, we, we felt there was a need for this on Las Olas Boulevard in Fort Lauderdale, very busy restaurant um, row where we have two other successful restaurants. And I took um, an employee of mine who had been with me for 15 years, who was a chef of one concept, and we made him a partner, brought him into the group and named the restaurant after him. And that is one of the most successful restaurants in our group, Louis Bossi's. It's great. I mean, that's so unusual. I mean, that says a lot. I mean, it, it's also a great segue to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is there is now a restaurant that bears your name. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. Okay. Well, go, well, why don't you correct me? And then uh, I'd love for you to just speak to why that, why that, um, came about well we we opened louis bossy's about five years ago we made my my uh my employee my chef um a partner so he became my culinary partner he is a real life person louis bossy it's just a great name for an italian restaurant and um it was so successful that we repeated the 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 concept and opened in boca raton about 40 minutes north of, of fort lauderdale when the next growth opportunity for that brand came along, we decided that it was better not to continue to name the restaurants like that because there is a notion of um, of it being a chain then, which is something lesser than a standalone restaurant. Um, so really it was sort of a, a, a practical notion, I think, to change the name. And my partner, Todd, came up with the idea of naming it after me. So my name is Lisa Betts. It's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. It was a, a, an Americanized version of the Italian version of Elizabeth. So my, my dad wanted to name me Elisabetta, and uh, somehow they Americanized it and came up with Lisabeth. So my partner heard this um, story, and he's like, but that's a great name for a restaurant. And I was like, whoops. Uh, so yeah, so then that became implanted in his mind. And when he gets, you know, an idea, he's going to hang on to it. So the next Italian restaurant that I opened with my partner, Louis Bossi's was Elisabetta's. And that was in Delray beach about two and a half years ago. 
And then the one we opened in West Palm Beach on the waterfront just this January um, is also Elisabetta's. And so it's um, Italian, it's traditional, it's a scratch kitchen. We're doing everything from the salumi production to the gelato, 17 different types of uh, pastas and and that sourdough bread that uh, we started doing five years ago from uh, from the starter brought from Chicago. I mean, everything from scratch. So it's a big, it's a 300 seat restaurant and everything's from scratch with 150 seats outside. So that has served us well, you know, in the current pandemic environment, for sure. Is it odd for you to have your name? I mean, you know, you, you've been running this huge group, but you, you know, you, um, you know, even like reading some of the press about you, you know, uh, people say these, I mean, they're, they're, they're meant as compliments, right? This is like one of the most prolific chefs you may not have heard of, you know, things like this. Um, It seems like you've been very happy to kind of, you know, I do the just do the job, you know, and not seek out uh, the limelight, not go after the television gigs and all this stuff. Is it is it odd for you to see your name like up in lights like that? I mean, you you did used to be an actress. Is it is it something that you you know? Is it something that's kind of a secret huge pleasure for you, or does it feel kind of weird? Now you know it's it's great for, um, for me at this point in my life, I am glad it didn't come earlier. Um, I feel like it, the restaurant in itself is a bit of a, a, a pinnacle of achievement. I put my heart and soul, um, you know, into every single recipe I wrote for this restaurant, um, along with my culinary partner, Louie. And, and we, we really put our best foot forward and, and it was very rewarding. That it was successful. So to have, have the recognition is, is great. And it's good for the business, you know, because it is uh, a symbol uh, to, to the women who we want to have in the kitchen, you know, and, and it recognizes and celebrates that aspect of, um, of the group and, and how, how the managerial um, enterprise is run. Um, My director of operations is also a woman. And I, I think it's important is it's not, I'm not super focused on it because I don't, I don't want to, I never wanted to pursue that type of limelight celebrity chef. Uh, I'm not interested in it. I'm interested in perfection. I'm interested in pursuing that plate by plate. I'm really interested in the enterprise at large of, of running a big group and, and, and what that means and the different skill sets that you need. Um, and it's been an organic process. You know, we started out, we're very small and we've, we've grown and grown and grown. And, and it's, it's brought a lot of opportunity for me. This opportunity is not one that I would, you know, stub my nose at or wouldn't want, but it came at the right time. Um, it's, it's nice to get the acknowledgement. Um, but the thing that, that matters to me is that, it will make a good impression on inspiring other um, chefs just through the opportunities that, that I get, like talking to you. This w- I don't think this would have happened, you know, if I didn't have uh, this restaurant with my name emblazoned on it. Um, and maybe it would have. Um, but this type of recognition is, is good for, it's good for the industry. And it's a time when we've certainly been decimated and people need you know, they need some good news. They need some good success stories. And so it certainly has been that for me. So 
whether I mean, I don't want to ask what's next from a business standpoint, because I'm imagining probably you whatever might be on the horizon for the group. You can't really talk about. But, you know, like I'm really struck when you talk about that you have a little mill at home now, because that I actually wrote an article about this this movement. That's, you know, the the, you know, people who were getting their hands on like whatever you want to call them, ancient grains or. Uh, heritage grains and and milling you know small batches and using them for bread or pasta or desserts that that's a real that's a real thing right now um uh what what else is kind of grabbing your attention either um uh like the next project you think you might take on at home or the thing that you're reading that's exciting you right now or the next place you might want to go visit and, and eat when, when, uh, whenever it is that you might feel safe doing that again. Uh, what, what's, what's kind of captured your imagination uh, in, in whatever way you want to answer that? Oh, that's a great question. God, <laughs> uh, so, many, so many things are still on the horizon. I mean, there's, there's so many stones that have been unturned uh, in terms of a culinary investigation. I, I guess that the thing that I'm really looking forward to is to be able to figure out and navigate my next 20 years, sort of like the last act of my working life. So I'm, I'm pretty aspirational there in that I'm going to be working till I'm 80. So let's just set that aside and say that I hope that I'll be able to continue with this evolution of my restaurant group um, that in involves um, giving back and, and, and not so much in a, in a, in a charitable way of setting up an organization, but I think what we're doing is it has merit and worth and it hasn't run its course. I mean, we, we employ a lot of young people and we create a, a, a great working environment for them to thrive and learn. And we still have the ability, I still have the ability to study and learn and travel. I, I wasn't so much of a traveler as I was younger. Like you, you mentioned more of an armchair traveler and, and reading books and collecting books and, and really immersing myself that way and what was going on in other people's kitchens. But as I'm able to travel, I can bring back um, impressions of those dining experiences. I was, I was in um, Europe before all this happened, year before last, uh, with a good friend of mine. And I snuck away to lunch at Pettersham Nurseries outside of London, which was uh, Sky Glennon Hall, where she got her career start. And kind of a, a, a mind-blowing experience for me, like eating that sandwich on that sunny day in, in Michigan at Zingerman's by myself. I, I too was by myself having a glass of wine and a, and a salad, all farm fresh ingredients. And I, it, I just marveled in the the style that has emerged and the the changes that have happened on on the expectations of of the diner and i guess i feel like there's a small restaurant inside of me like that like petersham nursery small plates shared plates that hasn't been built yet that is adjunct to um this large successful career running these big restaurants um i'm interested in uh, permaculture. And I just finished reading, talk about reading, kiss the ground. I mean, I'm interested in, in carbon sequestration. Like I think everybody should be. 
So how we in Florida embrace more of, uh, you know, the locavore movement and the farm to table movement is a real challenge because of agriculture down here. And it's just really starting. So it's not passe here at all. It, it needs to be nourished. It needs to have young chefs um, support that movement. Um, so there's, there's a, and there's a lot of young chefs that haven't really um, found they could be the emerging chefs of South Florida. And I haven't found the way into a successful um, structure, if you will, for an enterprise like I have. Um, maybe, probably more talented, but not as lucky as I've been. And I'd love to find a way to support um, some of these people in building restaurants with them. Um, that's kind of a dream of mine. Because I have learned the ins and outs of the operations. And I am... Um, well-versed in the brass tacks of the constructs of the financial objectives and how to teach and train people that, whereas it's a completely different world than just cooking. So bringing all of those parts together for, for people in South Florida that are emerging chefs, I would, I would, I see that somehow as formulating something in my mind that I'd like to do and continue to travel in Italy with my chefs. We took our, uh, my chef to Rome last year and, you know, we're, we're cooking typical Roman pastas, like so many restaurants are doing, you know, cacio and pepe, carbonara, and, and they're very popular dishes in our restaurant. They're not passe or that's been done too much before. Um, they're appreciated and, and we pay homage, you know, to, um, to the provenance of those dishes by continuing to travel and train and take our chefs with us on those trips. So that's really important to me as well to continue that. So that was going to be my last question, but somewhere in there when you were describing eating that sandwich in London, um, it occurred to me that um, I had to ask this last, this will be the last question. Um, you seem to really be able to articulate very well, um, uh, you know, context of certain moments in your life, uh, what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, are, are you also, are you a writer in some capacity? Like, do you, are you, do you keep a journal? Do you, um, uh, do you do some kind of writing? Cause your, your, your thoughts seem very well organized and you seem very clear on them. I suppose that's an aspiration of mine, right? To, um, to do a cookbook. I, I love reading so much. I think in order to be a good writer, you need to be well read. Um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, if I had more time off, I would probably study um, writing, but there's so many things I would do if I had more time off. So I'm still trying to juggle that work balance thing and, 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 you know, continue um, being a, a, a learner. And I, I, I might have some small stories in me. I mean, if we meet in person, we'll have to meet in person in New York and get a glass of wine over a great meal when, when it's open back up and I can travel again. And Well, or we, we might meet next time I come visit my home state. Oh, good. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. I have a lot of good stories, more stories about, about all reflecting back on all these experiences. And I've been so struck by the whole, really the tradition and, and the, the stories and the history of, of, um, cooking and the culinary arts my whole life. And that's kept me really happy and excited for a long time. So I don't expect much will change. Just continue to be able to, we went to LA, 
and ate and fabulous. Boy, the LA scene, like Chicago, is unbelievable. That just broke my heart to see uh, restaurants like Bestia and Bavel closing. I think they just opened back up, but boy, what those people are doing, amazing. So there's so much to continue to cook and eat and learn and so many restaurants to build. So I think I'm just going to be doing the same thing for a while, God willing. And that's our show for today. Again, a huge thanks to Lisa Betsuma and to Brandon Jew. If you are in South Florida, whether you live there or maybe if you're planning a trip as things get better around the country and we start to get our arms around managing and wrestling this pandemic into submission, visit their restaurants. They do have a website. I will link to it at the episode page for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com. And if you are in the San Francisco area, please visit Brandon's restaurant, Mr. Jews, and wherever you are, pick up his book, Mr. Jews in Chinatown. Again, it is wonderful, and I do recommend it. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you are able to support us, please contribute via our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Chefs, or support us in your own way just by telling a friend, posting about us on social media, or especially rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcast. Our thanks, as always, to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. The handle is at Chef Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. <laughs>